Hey, history buffs. Before we start the show, I just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe to Fucked Up History wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like the show, be sure to give us a good review. This will help other people find us, and the more people that find us, the more fun history stories we can tell. Now on with the show. In New York's Harlem, the new squire of Elbow is better known as Father Divine, whose thousands of followers loudly hail him as God on Earth whose heavens quake with the worship of his flock. Hey, hoes. On today's episode, I'll be doing a one-person reenactment of a 1995 episode of One Life to Live, where Vicky, who has become her alternate personality, Nikki Smith, throws Dorian down a flight of stairs in a fit of rage. It's my podcast and I can do what the fuck I want. Just kidding. You know, one of the greatest things about doing this podcast is that when I'm doing research, I oftentimes stumble upon people or topics I've never heard of. And that's exactly what happened when I read Adam Morris's amazing new book, American Messiahs. In it, Adam documents the history of self-proclaimed messiahs since our country's founding. Upon reading the book, I was struck when I came to the chapter about Reverend Divine, an African-American spiritual leader who claimed to be God. I had to get Adam on the phone because this all sounded too good to be true and I needed to know more. Adam's book is carefully researched and he has one of the best heads of hair I've literally ever seen on a grown man. So for that reason alone, I knew he'd be the best person to talk to about Reverend Divine. So sit back and relax because we're about to join the International Peace Mission Movement with Father Divine. I'm your host, Mark Brennan Rosenberg, and this is... Just kidding, it's fucked up history. Joining me today is Adam Morris, author of American Messiahs, False Prophets of a Damn Nation. He's quite honestly the best resource for the topic we'll be discussing today, so I wanted to check in with him and get the scoop on Reverend Divine's early years and see how his fabulous head of hair was holding up. It's been very windy here in California recently. Father Divine's early years are a bit confusing, so I wanted to see what Adam thought about it. Right, so a lot of that confusion comes from Father Divine's trial when he was convicted of overseeing a public nuisance in Sayville, Long Island. And the judge in the case was a waspy, dry judge who was, I think, a Presbyterian. And he was really determined to make an example of Father Divine because they were daring to integrate not only their religious movement and their household and their their, you know, community of wider believers, but the the actual community in which they live, which was an all-white seaside town. And the investigators or whomever he sent to do research on Father Divine in preparation for this trial, I suppose were commissioned by the court. And they turned up some facts that an academic by the name of Jill Watts, who's a historian at 
Cal State San Marcos, later contradicted with her own more thorough, impartial archival research. So yes, there is some confusion surrounding his origins. Early documents claim that he's from Georgia. Jill Watts's biography, which is by far the most authoritative source on Father Divine to date, determined that his mother was a former slave, that she was from Maryland, that he grew up in the uh, outskirts of Baltimore in something of a slum, a black slum that was an adjacent to a white community. According to Wikipedia, the town that Reverend Divine was born in was the same town that I was born in. You guys, it's really not that bad. And he and his family lived kind of, you know, in a rundown house, a type of shack with with other families. They were very poor. And his father was a type of handyman, and Father Divine was known as George Baker. Uh, So was his father, I believe. And after his mother died, and his mother was tremendously obese, which is a fact that Jill Watts later ties to the peace mission's focus on food and sustenance and abundance. She died, and George ba- the young George Baker takes off and goes to Baltimore, where he works some odd jobs, lives in a boarding house, and that's where he discovers this charismatic preacher who kind of sets his path as a, a prophet and then as Father Divine in motion. So that's all that we really know of his early years. In 1906, Father Divine became involved with the New Thought Movement, But what the fuck was that? Sounds like something Marianne Williamson is involved in. So, yes, Father Divine was receiving literature, as many people were, or discovering it somehow in the circles that he was traveling in. And New Thought is essentially a positive psychology movement. And it all dates back really as far as mesmerism, which was a European import to the United States, Slowly, mesmerism went out of style when people realized it was the power of suggestion that was enabling clairvoyant mesmeric subjects to heal themselves or heal other people or see things that that weren't really there. And this notion of auto-suggestion became very powerful in the U.S. as a result, mainly of Christian science promulgating this belief very effectively. And Mary Baker Eddy founds an entire religion based on positive psychology, even though she didn't really phrase it that way. And many of the apostates of of Christian science, people she kicked out of the church, would go on to form their own schools and quasi-religions that preached also the values of positive thinking. And this movement was really taking off by the turn of the century at the time when Father Divine, you know, would have discovered these pamphlets that I believe were from uh, the Fillmores, the unity uh, movement. And He takes off to California really not because of that, but because of the Azusa Street um, revivals and the religious excitement, enthusiasm that's going on out there. So that's what he was doing there. And positive psychology was even bigger and more influential in California than it was anywhere else. And that's because if you're trying to start a religious movement or a cult or become a serial killer, California really is a great place to come to. He... um, you know, it becomes a a mainstay, a staple of his message. So after his journey to California, I wondered, what happened when Father Divine formed his own congregation? So it kind of depends how you define it. He was an itinerant minister for a while in the South. And he goes from town to town, 
you know, not really collecting many adherents until he gets to Valdosta, Georgia. And in Georgia, he is finally hits on, uh, you know, one of the messages that really sustains his following, which was that uh, it was a message of quasi gender equality, that men and women were really the same and that we call them men and women uh, only as a result of human, fallible human biases. And this attracted some women from the town to be coming to his meetings. They would bring potluck meals. And this, in rudimentary form, became the template that Father Divine would use thereafter, which was uh, people coming together, living communally, which is what happened kind of accidentally in Georgia because some of those women left their abusive husbands, uh, their husbands who were demanding sexual intercourse from them as their right, as, as husbands. And they ended up with this household sort of headed by Father Divine, even though he didn't own the house. And you'll see this as a pattern down throughout the, re the rest of the movement. Father Divine tracks a very predominantly female following and predominantly black as well, although it was both sexes and interracial. But it was on the basis of these claims that uh, everyone was equal, male, female, black, and white. And that nucleus in Georgia ends up dissolving because the disgruntled men of of Georgia, uh, who are missing their wives, get him run out of town on a rail. And he ends up all the way up in New York City, where the movement really finally takes hold and becomes a nationwide phenomenon and worthy of comment in the national media. And while he's there in New York, that's, that's more of what he's doing. Communal households composed of both men and women who are committed to celibacy. And that's where you lost me and who are committed to interracial living on the basis of their claims that race, in fact, does not exist, just like gender does not really exist. Abstinence is a recurring theme in movements, especially ones that end in cults. I asked Adam, what is the deal with that? Yes, I think each of the movements had a different motivation for adopting celibacy, but I think they all, with the exception of the Universal Friends who were contemporaries of the Shakers, they all looked to the Shakers as a model, really, of sustainability, because the Shakers are, they technically still exist, so they've proved the envy in terms of longevity of all the other Messianic groups to follow. They also had almost perfected, really, the notion of a self-sustaining community separated from the world. And that's what each of these messianic groups wish to do. No matter how much they engaged in evangelism and in the case of Jim Jones or Father Divine, uh, movements for social change, they did view their groups as separate from a larger society that was in some way fallen, right? There's this Gnostic notion of a fallen world that's kind of at the core of each of these groups. And that is an idea that's played upon by each of the messiahs. Now, in Father Divine's case, it's very different from the Shakers, where there's a sort of personal, perhaps, reason that Anne Lee preached celibacy. There's some speculation that is because she lost uh, all of her children, uh, most of them in, in childbirth or stillbirths. And you know, none of her children ever reached to be never, never became an adult. So all of them died. And this was personally very tragic to her. The other place that she found justification for celibacy um, was in the Bible. And she was very convinced that the millennial church that she was founding in what would be the United States was, you know, to be unpolluted by original sin, the, the millennial church, not the United States. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, so, we're so way beyond that. 
Yeah, the Shakers were the most, definitely the most ideologically and theologically committed to celibacy. In Father Divine's case, we know that people probably left the movement as a result of having sexual relations with others. There, there are allegations of homosexuality in many of these uh, movements, especially the 20th century ones. And the real reason, in my view, that Father Divine would have been so keen on adopting Shaker style celibacy was because this was happening in the middle of Jim Crow America when blacks and whites were really not supposed to be cohabiting according to prevailing public opinion. And they got away with it because they were celibate. If you would have added miscegenation on top of that, they would have never been able to exist, even in the the northern cities where the movement was concentrated. Uh, Local people just never would have put up with that. So I think it was a wise stratagem on Father Divine's part. It was also a way in every single case to begin dissolving the bonds of family that held sometimes greater loyalty or claim to loyalty on the followers than devotion to an individual or more importantly, as I try to make the case in the book, devotion to the group. So the family in this case was supposed to be the broader family of followers who were becoming one family by their practice of apostolic socialism. And they were a family, a spiritual family, and not a biological family. And celibacy, the last thing I'll say about it is it really helped these movements control the size of their populations. Each of these movements depended on communal labor, so it was really important that everyone be able to work. And children, it's not to say that they can't work, especially in the 19th century, they were working all the time, but it really would have made it much more difficult for these movements to survive as long as they did. Eventually, Father Divine's congregation moves to Sayville, Long Island. Now, you gays listening will know that as the place where you catch the ferry to Fire Island. The congregation quickly found trouble in the community there. Well, they were in a residential home, and there were many of them packed in there. The numbers were fluctuating all the time, but there are always more than a dozen, even by the the outset of the uh, occupation of that home. And the old story goes that the home was owned by a, a German immigrant to the United States, a man of German descent, who was kind of victimized during World War One as a German. Uh, he was treated unfairly by his neighbors in the town, most of whom were probably of Anglo descent or Dutch or something. This is, you know, Long Island. And he, to get back at them, specifically advertised the house in for sale in black newspapers and the fact that he was seeking a black buyer. So although Father Divine by this point does not identify as black per se, he does recognize the prejudices of the outside world and saw an opportunity. They were trying to get out of Brooklyn and somewhere a little more uh, comfortable for the purposes of their, their movement. And the movement really incubated out there on Sayville, mostly without incident until the depression hits And not long before that, Marcus Garvey was exiled uh, back to Jamaica. He deported, I should say. And the movement that he'd started in New York was left without a leader. Simultaneously, all these people are catching wind of this man out on Long Island who's offering free meals. So you have these whole caravans of cars coming in from the city, bringing city folk, most of them black people, into an all-white town for these lavish meals that would last almost all day on Sunday. And they were singing and out in the yard and the townspeople just didn't want to put up with it anymore because they thought it was really going to 
drag the values of their properties down and kind of ruin the whole town. So it was these praise meetings and the all-day lunches on Sundays that kind of ended it for Father Divine's relationship with the neighbors. And it was the neighbors who get the DA involved, and there's a DA who's very suspicious of where Father Divine's getting all his money. So after a long process that included a couple of undercover agents that were sent in to infiltrate the movement, which they did successfully, they couldn't really make anything stick, and they end up invading the house uh, to serve Father Divine and his followers who were there for a very late night uh, animated praise meeting uh, to you know, charge them on grounds of public nuisance. And so this sets in motion the whole Father Divine story, as far as the media is concerned. The congregation expanded to become the International Peace Mission Movement, which sounds culty. I asked Adam, what, what does that mean? So the name Peace Mission really derives from the Harlem period after Father Divine is uh, convicted for, by this judge on Long Island who then drops dead a few days later. Mm. He is, becomes kind of a celebrity in the Harlem papers for claiming to or suggesting that he'd smited this judge with his, you know, divine powers. And he gets out, you know, and eventually ends up in Harlem with this huge charismatic following of people. And one of the properties that they had there, uh, they, they called the Peace Mission because one of the works or one of the watchwords of the mission was peace. And that's because Father Divine's followers were not allowed to swear. So they didn't say the word hello because it contains the word hell. Clearly, this wouldn't have been the movement for yours truly. And that is still how they answer the phone or greet one another today. So this building uh, up in Harlem that was given to Father Divine to use whenever he was in Harlem to speak to his followers there, they began calling it the Peace Mission. And the name kind of stuck and Father Divine adopted it. And when the, the headquarters moved permanently to Harlem from Sayville, and Father Divine made Harlem his official residence and, you know, began to buy a whole bunch of property there. The Peace Mission name was attached to all of these properties, which then became known as extensions of the Peace Mission. So officially, every single one of these boarding houses and businesses that the Peace Mission owned, which were countless, uh, were called Peace Mission extensions. And it's all a result of that notion that uh, even invoking the word hell <laughs> within the word hello was too risky for father, followers of Father Divine. It conjured too much negative energy and negative thoughts. Father Divine's congregation purchased several properties upon moving to Harlem, but was something nefarious going on? You know me, I'm so skeptical. I'm like Debbie Downer's mother, Deborah Downer. I don't believe anything anymore. <laughs> father Divine was principally the source of his his wealth was this was the depression and his movement the peace mission was known as a reliable source of trustworthy domestic labor so the followers were both races and a lot of them needed jobs and that's why they moved into these communal households was because they were promised meaningful work and if they couldn't get a job at a private household or or some business that needed reliable, trustworthy help, Father Divine would put them to work in one of the Peace Mission's own businesses. And the followers themselves very loyally patronized Peace Mission bakeries, Peace Mission garages, Peace Mission hotels, and so on. 
And so they had their own kind of micro economy going on. And since no one was working for pay and everyone was living in cramped boarding house style quarters, they were able to basically generate a profit and to keep this model expanding over the course of a decade, which is what happened. So I don't really think of that as nefarious so much as practical. And everyone agreed to what they were signing up for. Now, a lot of other people, wealthy followers, especially some of the white ones, did donate large fortunes to Father Divine. And why they did that and what purposes they had for doing that uh, are really unknown to us, except, uh, you know, we have to take their sincerity of belief in Father Divine as seriously as we take anyone else's. Many of them remain with the movement for the rest of their lives. So that's what he was doing. And uh, he was also kind of getting around property and tax restrictions that would have been imposed on a normal person by not holding any of this property in his name. Uh, the Peace Mission originally just encouraged followers to purchase all these properties as TIC, tenancy in common. So something as simple as a, a 10 bedroom mansion on Madison Avenue, one kind of relatively simple property would be owned by as many as 20 or 40 people. And some of these uh, deeds that are signed, you can even find here in the uh, Pe uh, People's Temple archives in California, because Jim Jones was very interested in studying these arrangements and trying to replicate them in California. So a tenancy in common meant that if one person decided to leave, they could just be bought out very easily. Not a single person was owning large chunks of a property, nor could they because most of these people were quite uh, of humble origins. And then when people tried to sue for any reason, they couldn't take away any of these properties because the ownership was so complicated. And it was very difficult to sue for, you know, just anything more than your contribution to the group, which was your little stake in whatever tenancy you bought into. Uh, later, the, the, these buildings were all incorporated as three different churches, and that would allow them to be completely exempt from taxes. Father Divine referred to himself as God. If he wasn't a sociopath or pulling a long con, I wondered, how did he get away with that? Well, he was a staunch adherent of New Thought beliefs. He studied a lot of the New Thought authors all throughout the 20s and 30s. In New Thought, there's a kind of eminence of the notion of God, that God is, yes, everywhere and always and in all things, but God is also not really anthropomorphic. So at first, it might appear contradictory that Father Divine was able to conceive of himself as a God since he was in the body of a man. But what he would claim, and using New Thought idioms like harmonizing to the abundance and the divine consciousness, and there are all these metaphors in New Thought that refer to God in kind of an ethereal way. It's more of an idea or um, the consciousness of the universe and so on. And you'll hear this still in self-help books that are sold at the airport you know, right now. And he claimed to be the person who was the most harmonized to the divine concept of abundance, the divine abundance that the spark of which exists in all of us. And that if you were, if you hung around with him long enough and around other people who attuned their consciousness to his thinking, his line of thinking, his abundance, that they could not only achieve that abundance in their lives, but become immortal. And so God was almost a metaphor for the peace mission. He, Father Divine didn't conceive of himself as a kind of God who lived in heaven and um, had a beard or whatever. He was fully 
attuned, he would say, to the vibrations of this divine consciousness, this unity and abundance. So when people would ask him, his followers would simplify that and just simply say that he was God. And he accepted that. And a lot of peace mission extensions were decorated with slogans that said, Father Divine is God. And he didn't bother to contradict that. If that's how they understood it, that was fine by him. In the court of law, when he was under sworn oath, he was very careful not to make that claim because there were places where that was illegal to do. And he would often instead resort to one of Jesus's own strategies by asking, who do people say that I am? And that's something that Jesus had once said, and Father Divine found that a very appealing method to avoid having to directly say, I am God or I am the Messiah. All right. So I have to say, I am coming around a little bit. When I first started reading about Father Divine, I thought he was a cult leader, but it seems to be that he's doing a lot of good and really wanted to make the world a better place. I asked Adam about the social justice reforms that Father Divine was very passionate about. So he was really passionate about making sure black people had some kind of economic opportunities. A lot of those businesses that I mentioned to you that Peace Mission followers loyally patronized and worked for were founded by black people who otherwise had very few paths to become entrepreneurs. They had a guaranteed clientele, in other words. And this was hugely transformative in the lives of untold thousands of people. Uh, and this was huge. Uh, he was against Social Security and the reforms of the New Deal. This might be because a lot of the workers that he was trying to support, domestic servants in particular, were not covered by some of the New Deal programs. Uh, we know that many writers today who are concentrated on the perpetuation of white supremacy have brought this up, that the New Deal was its or had in itself encoded uh, some racist categorizations, and that was one of them. And that didn't stop Father Divine from trying to intervene in politics and to influence FDR while he was president. They were actually neighbors because Father Divine had bought an estate right next door uh, to the Roosevelts. And he lobbied very passionately, more passionately than anything in his whole life, for anti-lynching legislation. And that was really an undying passion for him. And in that sense, he kind of paved the way for a lot of the civil rights activism that would come later, when a more respectable figure would appear in the form of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., some people in the past, especially ones with large religious followings, can oftentimes look like bad people to us in the present. I wondered, did Adam think that Reverend Divine was a good guy? I do. And I know that my sympathies for some of the people that I portrayed in the book are objectionable to people who think that they misled and abused the trust and credulity of a lot of their followers. Uh, I think that a lot of people, we have to assume that people had varying degrees of belief in Father Divine's divine powers. Many of them might have not believed at all, but they were completely on board with what he was doing materially in the lives of his followers. And we should also be reminded that the many of the Christian churches, some of their practices today, are hardly in line with biblical teaching either. Preach, brother. Um, so there's a sense in which Father Divine's preaching and the way he was harping constantly on returning to the values of the original apostles, that, uh, particularly with regard to the communal sharing and welcoming of all people into the fold, was not something the Christian church was doing. Um, 
I mean, the black church more so than maybe some of the other churches. Uh, but it was still uh, pretty revolutionary for him to be do, conducting some of the economic experiments that he was doing. He was tarred by association with the communists. He claimed that he was doing the communists a favor by... Um, setting this kind of example and by organizing people. Later, he would have to change that rhetoric in the post-war period because the Red Scare made it much more dangerous to be making those kind of claims. Uh, during the, de the Depression, it was easy to say, you know, ah, the communists are copying my movement. Um, he, stopped, he stopped saying that kind of thing after World War II, and the movement became kind of very patriotic. There are a lot of American flags uh, in the iconography of the peace mission movement after that period. Our old buddy Jim Jones was very interested in what was going on over at Father Divine's congregation. And what that piece of shit tried to do was use Father Divine's teaching to his advantage, going as far as saying Father Divine's spirit inhabited Jim Jones's body upon his death. What a fuckboy. Uh, that's 100% true. I have been told that by multiple people, including one person who was on the scene when it happened. Uh, it's also in, Les also in Leslie Wagner Wilson's autobiography, uh, her memoir about being in People's Temple. She was one of the escapees from Jonestown the morning of the tragedy. They, di they didn't know, actually, that revolutionary suicide was occurring when they were leaving they had already resolved to escape that day uh anyway she she was there and lots of other people were on those mission trips to the peace mission and can attest to father excuse me to jim jones's private uh declarations of intent to take over the peace mission this was an intent of his that dates all the way back to the 1950s and he didn't really give up until he had completely uh, been repelled by Mother Divine and her loyalists in the seven, 1973. And he, they did meet, yes, when he was still living in Indianapolis, and he was completely bowled over by Father Divine. He expected to think of him as a charlatan, and as a testament to Jim Jones's open-mindedness in some things, he became a, a, a huge admirer of Father Divine. And it's funny, you mentioned you didn't know about these encounters um, or even about Father Divine. The, the narrative really has become occluded over the years and it was more of a common knowledge back when both movements were still going on and it it was discussed although very briefly in tim reiterman's uh biography of jim jones there's a couple pages on their relationship nothing uh in great detail and it was even represented in a made-for-tv movie from the 1980s that you can watch on what? youtube yeah and and interestingly I forget the actor who plays Jim Jones. He's a relatively well-known character actor, but... The actor's name is Powers Booth. You may remember him as the dad on Nashville. He won an Emmy for his performance as Jim Jones. Never question my random knowledge of 1980s made-for-TV movies. James Jones, James Earl Jones, plays Father Divine. So you have kind of these two... Jim Jones's in the movie uh, simultaneously, yeah, and so it it was it wasn't unknown that this had happened, um, but I make more of an emphasis on it than previous historians have done because Father Divine himself does not appear out of nowhere, but instead is he's quoted he's you know mentioning the Shakers in his sermons. Um, there's no evidence that he knew about uh, the Koreshian unity, for example, but I did find evidence that. The person who had kind of inspired him to become 
an itinerant preacher was himself influenced by the Koreshian unity. And I just, you know, uncovered this whole trajectory that leads up to Jim Jones in this, what I consider very compelling way. And it's really this last pairing of Father Divine and Jim Jones, these two incredibly famous in their periods, uh, leaders who kind of uh, demonstrate the consequences of this long history of American Protestantism moving further and further away from ideas of mutual aid and inclusivity and what what the potential consequences of that could look like. Each successive movement of these messianic movements was more and more successful in terms of its public perception, its the way it articulated its critique of the, the structures of American capitalism and the way the American Protestant church has accommodated itself to that. And, you know, I get in trouble for calling the peace the peace mission and people's temple successful but they both did make serious and commendable differences in people's lives and i don't think that just because they might have had negative effects in other ways or in the case of people's temple ended in really horrible disturbing ways that doesn't erase the more laudable achievements that they they had um, so that was really the purpose of concentrating so much focus on those last two groups and that encounter between Father Divine and Jim Jones. Adam is so well-versed on the topic. I wanted to know what he thought Father Divine's legacy was now. And I also wondered what became of the international peace movement? So, you know, a lot of people would say Father Divine is emblematic of the type of respectability politics that begins to be worn away with the uh, civil disobedience, first of all, of followers of Martin Luther King Jr., and then with, you know, more radical folks like Malcolm X and like someone else that Jim Jones admires, Huey Newton. And the, the legacy is clear in places like Philadelphia, where the movement ended up being based in the latter half of its days. Of course, it still exists there. So there's that legacy. But he was really fighting an uphill battle against segregation and against the effects that segregated property ownership would end up having on places like New York and Philadelphia. Those cities didn't have the type of redlining that was really rampant in some other places and certainly weren't like, wasn't a concept that was really pioneered there. But um, de facto segregation and exclusion of uh, blacks from ownership of really anything uh, led Philadelphia in particular to become, to go from being this thriving metropolis, the second largest city in the British Empire, this very wealthy commercial city to by the 1980s being a really crime-ridden and dangerous and poor large majority minority city. And so really the movement soldiered on through all of that. And you have people today, uh, I think there's someone in The Roots, one of the members of The Roots talks about growing up in Philadelphia and being taken to Father Divine Peace Mission, free breakfasts uh, or some of their other free meals, because they continued over the course of those years when the city was really on hard times and a lot of people were suffering, they continued to serve people. And so although their form of religious-oriented uh, racial activism, especially because it disavowed the existence of race, it fell quickly out of favor after Father Divine died and was immediately um, superseded by what we think of as the American Civil Rights Movement. There were definitely ways that Father Divine paved the way or softened the ground for 
these later movements that would come in the 1960s because he had almost completely re uh, retired from public life by 1960. He was very old and ill and didn't want people to know that he was ill because he was supposed to be omnipotent and live forever. So he left behind uh, a movement that then dwindled and I think a lot of people would say that that was the proof that the movement didn't have a real legacy. Uh, but I try and argue that it did, not only through the direct inspiration to People's Temple and the accomplishments that they would achieve, but also because the, the movement left behind this consciousness, I think, of property and wealth inequality. And in the 30s, it was this giant um, middle finger to that kind of exclusion because Father Divine dared to go around in these uh, tailored suits and Rolls Royce chauffeured cars. And people remembered that for a much, much lo longer time than you would think. Uh, there are people still living in Philadelphia today who can go by the Divine Lorraine, which is now being turned into luxury apartments, and remember what it stood for. And Although once it was abandoned, it stood for urban blight for decades and decades before that. It stood for a movement that dared to oppose the social forces that were contributing to that blight. I have to say, when I was first reading about Father Divine, I was very skeptical of what his motivations may be. But after learning more about him, I was pleasantly surprised that I was wrong. He did a lot of really wonderful things for the people of his congregation. While his verbiage is something that may be a bit overreaching, Adam has shown that his legacy is something to be admired. I'd like to thank Adam Morris for joining me today. His amazing book, American Messiahs, is available wherever books are sold. I'd also like to thank Darian Shulman for composing the original music for this podcast and John Wynn for doing all of our amazing original artwork. I'm your host, Mark Brennan Rosenberg, and this has been Fucked Up History. We'll see you next week.